The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As you do, um, I would just want to let you know that there have been many revolutions in our world. We live in a world filled with revolutions. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, 100 years ago this October was the Bolshevik Revolution that caused a great change in Russian government forever. When we talk about revolutions, it is the takeover of one system to the other. It is a way for one regime to replace another. And today we're going to be talking about a very different revolution, but one that is one of the most dangerous and violent revolutions in all of history, and that is the sexual revolution. This massive revolution is taking place right now in our society and in our culture, and our world is telling you and me and every other person, you need to pick a side. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to follow along as I read Romans 1, starting at verse 18. As I will be reading through it, I'm going to be doing just a little bit of running commentary for what it has to say. Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that the suppression of the truth here is not merely philosophical misunderstanding. This is a lifestyle of unrighteousness and ungodliness. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. That is very important. It is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. To whom? To all people of all time everywhere. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, not just shown, but perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, speaking of all people of all time, are without excuse. God's word is teaching that everyone can see enough of the truth of God from nature to be condemned by their suppression of that truth. As Paul says, no one is without excuse. That's you, that's me, that's everyone. So Paul's argument, as he argues this, he is going to chronicle the path of a culture that begins to suppress the truth. What does it look like when a society begins to do what he's speaking about here in suppressing the truth? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, why? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Notice that God is allowing the culture to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the mire of their own desires for depravity. He is simply removing his hand and allowing the culture to go where it wants. And that is a punishment and judgment against them. For this reason, it says, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What are they? He explains, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now notice Paul highlights here homosexuality. But then he gives a much fuller list of all these different sins that are a result of the pinnacle or climax of a society that is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. In verse 29 it says, They were filled... Who? Again, all people of this culture. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Now pause for a second. This is pretty bad stuff. And then the next one condemns us all. Disobedient parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do not simply see this as a way to point a finger at another. This is intended to be a mirror reflecting yourself. That's quite a list, but if you watch the news, you'll quickly realize this is also a clear definition of where we live, our society. But if you want something that Paul returns to, I want you to see what he returns to here in the next verse. He started this argument by stating that everyone has an awareness of God and of God's character and nature and attributes, and that his divine attributes and creation stand as evidence against those people, so they are culpable for their sins. But Paul returns to this idea that everyone knows God's decree, but they intentionally suppress them. Verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree... Those who pra- that those who practice such things, what things? Not just homosexuality that he, he highlighted, but all of the things in this list, which we are guilty of. It says, verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, sin results in death or deserves or earns death, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who do practice them. In other words, notice that not everyone practices every one of the sins. You might look at this list and say, I do this, but not that. And you perceive yourself to be better than the next guy because you don't find yourself meeting the same qualifications as them in this list. However, before God, you are just as guilty. And this should be terrifying because of the opening words of what I read to you. What is it that is being spoken about here? What is the consequence of all of these things? Paul writes in verse 18, it is the wrath of God that is being revealed against, revealed from heaven against these people. And that is you, and that is me. And if we understand the power and the authority and the holiness of God, this wrath should be absolutely terrifying. So today we're talking about biblical anthropology, or what the Bible says about us. In particular, this session is about gender and sexuality. And I Honestly, I can't think of anything more controversial in our day than this and what the Bible has to say about it. 
So my goal for the remainder of the session is not to present a broad and thorough scope of everything that exists in the way that we respond to this. However, I do want to give you a basic and simple ethic for biblical and godly sexuality. So as I do this, as I present this, I want you to think or imagine a building, not like a modern building like we have today, but like consider an ancient Greek building with four large marble pillars holding up a ornate, beautiful roof. Now, that roof is what I would consider here a godly, biblical, sexual ethic. And that's what we want. But in order to have that, you need to have all four of these things in place that I'm about to speak about. These four pillars are necessary, and these four pillars are truths that we need to understand from the Bible about who we are. And if you understand these truths, it will go a long way in upholding that roof. However... Our society and culture is suppressing each one of these truths as we've seen here in Romans 1. So what I want to do is look at each one of these pillars, talk about what they are from the Bible, how our culture is suppressing them, and what we need to do in response. Pillar number one is what I'm going to call or refer to as the pillar of origin. Every single person answers the question either internally or externally at some point in their lives, whether it is conscious or not, Where do I come from? And the answer of that question is very significant. Thoughts have consequences. Beliefs have consequences. And the Bible teaches us very simply that God made you. God made you. I don't care where you look in our society. Everything our culture will teach you is opposite to this. I will say it again. God made you. The Bible teaches us this in Genesis 1.27 when it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is absolutely clear without any ability to argue, God made mankind. And God made you. That is the first pillar. It's very simple. Absolutely foundational. If you don't know this and cannot understand this pillar, the building will not stand. So as we consider this, I want you to understand that our very first parents that were created in Eden were the ones who God made in his image. But as we learned in our previous session, that carries on in each one of us. Every single one of us are made in his image. And the Bible teaches us that he created you. It wasn't just God creating two individuals and letting the world operate however it wants. No, he created you. Psalm 139, 13 says, God knit you together in your mother's womb. Even if your parents were not planning you or expecting you, God was, and he did, and he established you and formed you. And we could go through all sorts of scripture to prove this. This pillar of truth is very simple, but it's necessary to know God made you. In our culture, the way that they suppress this is very disturbing. In 1859, one of the most influential books of all time was written by Charles Darwin on the origin of species. And that book radically altered the landscape of philosophy and science and the way that we approach one another and everything else in our society. Within 20 years of its first publication, biological evolution had been adopted as the primary view of human origins by almost every single major university in the entire English-speaking world. That is a revolution. 20 years, and everyone had adopted this belief. And within 100 years, this belief system had systematically attempted and successfully in most ways eradicated God from every facet of higher learning. And now we are seeing on an 
ongoing way, the battle taking place on the level of what should be taught to our children. You have prominent scholars lining up behind men like Bill Nye, who recently produced a video called Creationism is Not Appropriate for Children. Or people like Lawrence Krauss, who is a very well-known scientist who says teaching creation is child abuse. It's the title of his film. This is a common way that our society has absolutely and radically shifted. It is no longer just acceptable to believe that God created you. Well, you believe what you want. I'll believe in biological evolution. No, it is now an all-out war where they believe that the teaching of these things to our children is absolutely evil. Honest science does not lead to the conclusion of biological evolution. And I would love to speak more about that with you when I have time, but for now I want to focus simply on the consequences of accepting and rejecting the truth of our origins. If you believe, as the Bible teaches, that God is our creator, then logically it stands that he has authority to tell us what to do. And as you would expect, that exactly is what we, that is exactly what we see in the Garden of Eden. God makes man, and then he gives him commands. However, if you answer the question by saying that you are an autonomous being who is not planned or not created, but you are somehow capable of controlling or determining your own destiny, then you're just some chance product of a bunch of prehistoric slime, so you have no responsibility to anyone else for anything. And you don't have a reason to treat anyone in any particular way. Jim, I was really, really impressed and thankful for the way he spoke about our relation to other people and love towards other people. If you believe in these things, you absolutely have no right or reason to love. It's survival of the fittest. If God did not create me, ultimately the, the, the foundational aspect is this. If he did not create me, then he has no authority to hold me accountable for my actions. I am a moral free agent. It means that there's absolutely no standard for my morality because there's no, no God who gives rules. Then they must be created by human means. Rules must be just simply a human formulation. And this leads to the logic that morality evolves as people do, which not coincidentally is exactly what we see happening in our culture all the time. But God made you. God made you. Therefore, you are responsible to him. Now, Mike's going to talk a lot more about what that responsibility looks like here in a little while. So I want to move now on to our second pillar. I call this the pillar of identity. Another question that we all must answer in terms of our gender and our sexuality is, who am I? Who am I? It's a very basic foundational question. Children begin asking this question before they can speak. And the Bible teaches us, as we've already read in Genesis 1, that God made us male and female. Included in that is the fact that there are unique blessings and responsibilities that fall into each gender category. It also means that there are only two gender categories. In recent years, the sexual revolution has churned out some shocking ideas, and at the center of all of them is the rejection of the reality of God being the one who gives you your identity. The mantra of the modern sexual movement is that your sex is determined by your biology, but your gender is a social construct, so you can choose to be whatever you want. Facebook now lists 58 options to choose from in the gender category. Certain colleges now list up to 63 options to choose from. Uh, just before we started today, Steve was telling me some very concerning things that's going on in the elementary level and in college entry levels. 
Most commonly, these deviations from traditional biblical sexual identities are referenced by the acronym LBGTQ and sometimes with I included there at the end. I like how Albert Moeller refers to it. It is an alphabet soup of sin. In the Genesis account, the first time that God said anything was not good, do you know when it was? It was not when Adam and Eve sinned. It was because of an incomplete creation. And God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So God had completely made man, but he had not completely made mankind until he made woman. And so God creates woman by putting Adam into a deep sleep and removing a rib and performing the first surgery of all time and then waking him up to a woman and performs there the first marriage. It was the only time that God said there was something not good. Every time he created something, it's good, it's good, it's good, but God creates man and then lets him wait and just takes some time before he allows him to recognize something's missing. What is it? And it's his wife. So God then creates woman. And he doesn't say this is good. He says, and it is very good. And it says that he blesses them. In his book, What is the Meaning of Sex? Denny Burke writes, the union of the first man and the first woman was the most healthy, wholesome, and satisfying union that has ever existed, and it involved a man leading his wife and a wife following the leadership of her husband. After the fall, male-female relationships have never been the same again. They have never recovered what was lost there in the garden. God cursed the serpent, and then he cursed Eve, and then he cursed Adam. But I want to focus in for a moment on the way that he curses Eve here in Genesis three sixteen and 17. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, there's a lot here, but let me highlight just a couple quick things. First of all, notice that Eve's unique role as being capable of bearing children is now going to be accompanied with great suffering and pain. God promises also, secondly, and and significantly for our purposes today, that there is going to be some kind of contention between woman and man, and that her desire will be contrary to her husband. Now, it is likely that this means that that the natural propensity of women is to be contentious and unsubmissive to the leadership of their husbands, but the next part of the promise is just as bad, which says, but he shall rule over you. Which, if the prior phrase is being appropriately applied to all womankind, then this phrase indicates the natural propensity of man to have a distorted view of marital leadership. And the way that they lead their wives is no longer loving in the way that it is, it is designed to be. Instead, it is now a distorted perspective to rule over them. This seems to imply arrogance and domineering attitude and perhaps even harsher ingrained tendencies that must be overcome in every marriage. Now, that was the beginning of a shift of the natural gender perception. God created these people perfect in their understanding of what their roles were as well as their identity. But that began to shift as a curse from God. And I think this would be a good time for us to pause. Hunter is going to help me out. Put it up here on the screen for us. This is an apple. Some people might try to tell you that it's a banana. They might scream banana, banana, banana over and over and over again. They might put banana in all caps. You might even start to believe that this is a banana. But it's not. 
This is an apple. Now, that was an advertisement that is currently running on television for CNN. Please do not view this, by the way, as an endorsement or a repudiation of CNN. I am not here as a pastor to tell you what news channels to watch. However, even though there is a political message being stated here in this commercial, and they're attempting to make a point, I'm, I'm not speaking about what they're speaking about here, but I want you to see that at face value, what they're saying is absolutely true and very important as a message to our culture. It's very lacking from our social conversation about gender identity today. So in terms of gender and sexuality, how do I determine my identity? It's an apple. doesn't matter what anyone else says. It is what it is. We are who we are. We are created. We are designed as a person biologically. Our culture keeps developing new ways, though, to answer this question, how do I determine my sexual identity? We now have parents that are entering into legal battles, both in Canada and the United States, that are attempting to oppose the idea that you should be required to put a gender on the birth certificate of your child. One such parent from British Columbia said the following, because they are suing the Canadian government, refusing to put anything, and they succeeded. They actually put a U for unidentified on the birth certificate. Here is a quote. I'm going to slightly edit it for especially the younger ears in our room today. This person says, When I was born, doctors looked at my body and made assumptions about who I would be. And those assignments followed me and followed my identification throughout life. But their assumptions, assumptions, were incorrect. And I ended up having to do a lot of adjustment since then. I want my child to form their own sense of identity, not to conform to one assigned to them at birth. I want my kid to have all the space to be the most whole and complete person that they can be. Now, to state the obvious, it is absolutely unloving to allow a child to do whatever they want to do. If my son is running towards the street and there is traffic, it is unloving for me to sit back and say, oh, well, I guess that's what he wants to do. Let's see how this works out. No, that is evil parenting, to allow a child to do whatever they desire. I don't even let my kids get dressed by themselves, much less select their own gender. This is not the way that the world is, attempt, is designed to work. We are given the, the role as parents to assist and guide and structure and develop the mind of our children to understand what the world is and how it operates. And I feel terrible for these people who are now adults who clearly have not understood those things and their children are being are suffering because of it. We live in a hyper-individualistic society and it is clamoring to have the ability to define themselves, but not only to define themselves internally or in their own mind, but also to force that identification upon everyone and you must accept and applaud their self-created persona or you are considered wicked. One of the greatest cultural sins that you can commit in our day and age is to deny that someone has the identity that they have adopted for themselves or to imagine that it is somehow invalid. This is true especially as we see it in uh, the shift that we have in transgenderism. We see this also in homosexuality, feminism. We also see this in, in very simple ways with men who passively refuse to lead their families. It is a failure, a rejection of the persona, the identity 
the role that God has given us. This is not simply something we're speaking about LGBTQI issues. We're speaking also about the role and authority and position that men have in the home and the role and, and responsibilities that a woman has in the home in a relationship to their husband. These things cannot be overlooked or simplified. They are very extensive in the ways that we have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. So the second pillar is simply this. Your gender and the responsibilities that flow from that are determined for you by God. And in order to know how you are designed to operate before God, you're going to need to first of all accept that you are who God created you to be biologically, and you are going to need to look at the designer's manual to know how you are supposed to operate. That is why we need the scripture to teach us how we are to operate as men and women. Now, that's a huge topic, and I'm definitely not going to speak about it in, at length today. I will have resources available up here at the end for you to observe, to see uh, some of my, the best books that I know of on this topic, and I would love for you to come check those out. But that brings us now to our third pillar, which is the pillar of institution. Specifically, I'm going to be speaking about the institution of marriage. Our culture and modern society at large will teach you that marriage is simply a social construct that has no intrinsic morality and it should be open to change in its definition and its boundaries. Some argue that marriage itself has always been an evil enterprise that has been created by the patriarchy for the enslavement of women. Others will argue that it's simply an outdated system of social contract that we have to culturally outgrow and they should be left behind. Others would gladly keep marriage around, but they think that we should expand its definition to include same-sex marriages and perhaps polyamorous or polygamous marriages as well. Many other people just don't care because they've left completely behind the idea that marriage is important at all because the things that used to be sacred and specifically designed for the marriage have now been entertained outside of the boundaries of covenant marriage. But I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, and I want you to see how Jesus deals with the idea of marriage. Matthew chapter 19, I would ask that you start following along in verse 3. I'll give you a second to get there. It says this, And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or for any reason? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore God has joined, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I want you to see, first of all, that Jesus doesn't make up something new. He points them to the institution of marriage from the beginning. This is how God has created life to operate. He grounds his statement in the historical reality of God's original marriage and uses that as a pattern for what all marriage is always intended to look like. And as Christians, the view of marriage that we should have or strive to adopt is the view that Christ himself proclaimed. Am I right? There's no wiggle room here for us to include any of the perversions about marriage in our society today. And anyone who claims to be a Christian that promotes any of these false views that I mentioned is in direct contradiction to the teaching of Jesus himself. But why is this a big deal? What's the big deal? 
Why not just practice godly marriage in the church and let the world do whatever they want and try not to stop them? Let's just leave them alone and let them do whatever they want. If it makes them feel good, fine. Well, there's a myriad of reasons that I could go into. We could speak about the breakdown of the nuclear family. We know statistically and from every study, there is no one who would disagree with that, that the breakdown of the family is the number one cause of drug addiction, of poverty, of people going to jail. It is the central aspect at the the root of almost every major social issue in our society that everyone agrees is a problem. And there's the breakdown of the family. Well, this is definitely not helping, this perspective on marriage. I I could point to a lot of other issues, such as the religious liberty infringements that exist. People are now being sued if you refuse to celebrate those who are doing things in a way that is contrary to the Scripture. We could speak of the fact that legalizing something creates a generation that is naturally inclined to think it is good or acceptable because the lawmakers who have gone before them have told them this is good and acceptable. How is it that so many people were blind to slavery being such a great sin? How is it that so many people failed to see the atrocity it is to treat a Jewish man in the Holocaust the way that they did? How is it that you can be so blind? It's because it becomes institutionalized, and when the culture and the the law says it's okay— We grow up thinking it's okay. What is Hitler's youth, if not this? It is an indoctrination to believe that something is right because it is legal. The Holocaust did not break any laws, nor did slavery. My list could go on and on, but instead, I'm going to focus for just a moment on the serious problem, the most serious problem that we see in the suppression of this pillar of truth, of the institution of marriage. And it is that God did not create anything haphazardly or arbitrarily. He designed marriage with a highly intentional purpose. But included in God's creation of marriage was a mystery that laid dormant and unobserved by all mankind for many years, for literally millennia. And it was not until after Christ's resurrection that the ultimate cosmic meaning for marriage was ever revealed. In Ephesians chapter 5, after giving some instructions to husbands and wives, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, going back to the first marriage in Genesis. But he continues and says, this mystery is profound. Most people look at that and say, what is the mystery? What do you mean mystery? What are you talking about? It's just two people getting married. But Paul is telling you, from the beginning, God's design for that first marriage was that there is an underlying mystery in that. There is a meaning that you have not yet known. And he says, I am going to tell that to you right now. He says, it is very profound. And I am saying that it refers, this marriage refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33, however... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He has been talking about the relationship between a husband and wife being representative, being a picture of the gospel itself. If you suppress the institutional realities of marriage, you are necessarily and spectacularly distorting the picture of the gospel that God created to put on display for the whole world in the institution of marriage. Which brings us nicely now to our fourth pillar, which is what I refer to as the pillar of purpose. In other words, what are you living for? What is the purpose of your life? Everyone has to answer that question, whether they do it externally or internally, consciously or subconsciously. Everyone has to answer that question. And the real answer to that question is usually not what people say with their mouths. But the way that you can determine the real answer to that question is the way that this person lives. 
What are you living for? How do you know? It's by what you do. I'm going to make my explanation at this point very brief. The truth is that the chief end of man is to love God and enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. That's what we were designed to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that we are to glorify God. We are to glorify him. So that as 1 Peter 4.11 says, that God in all things might be glorified. You were designed to glorify him and enjoy him. As Tom and Watson would, Thomas Watson would say, that means that our highest calling consists in glorifying God in four ways. Appreciating him, adoring him, having affection for him, and being subject to him. And that means that even our sexuality and gender roles are created for the express purpose of giving God glory. Our society answers these questions about purpose in many ways. You can determine many different answers. If we look at the other pillars and the way they've rejected them and suppressed them, there's a myriad of ways that you can answer because there's no structural method to determine what is really true. In fact, truth as, it, as an entity has been rejected. The idea of truth in general, has been refused. Maybe it's true for you, but not for me. So what are you living for? The typical answer that runs through most of the center part of how people answer this is to make myself happy. My existence is about my own self-gratification, and I will pursue it with whatever avenue necessary. One of the unfortunate characteristics of the modern church is that we do not strongly enough resemble Christ in this way. Rather, we resemble the world. We do not look different in the ways that we should. Our lives do not often reflect the sacrificial lifestyle of Christ. In terms of sexuality and gender, there are thousands of sinful outlets that have been created to pursue personal happiness. But, ultimately, those things can never, ever, ever, ever fulfill anyone. Sin, which is pleasurable for for a moment, robs you of real genuine joy, and it brings deep, tormenting shame to you. Sexual sin, if nothing else, is deeply shameful. And I know so many people who will tell you that they're deep regrets. I've had so many times opportunities to counsel with people who will speak to me of their deep regret of their sexual sins and the way that it has devastated them in ways they could never anticipate. Most of the time, it is not primarily you that suffers, but those who you love the most who suffer because of your sin. So we're going to come to a close with that and remind you of the four pillars. What are they? The pillar of origin, God made you. Very simple. The pillar of identity, God determines your sexual identity. The pillar of institution, God created marriage and has a clear set of proper boundaries for all sexual activity. And finally, the pillar of purpose, your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But I need to add something before we close today. And that's the fact that even if you know these four pillars... Even if you know them in your mind and you attempt to live by them, they are going to topple and fall in one direction or the other if they are not built on the proper foundation. And the proper foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross in the place of sinners so that we who have failed, as we read earlier, are worthy to be under the wrath of God. We who have rebelled and rejected God are capable of now being in a right relationship to him because of nothing that I have done. It's not because I got these four pillars right. It's because God has redeemed me and saved me and made me his own child. Now, let me explain why this must be the foundation. 
if these four pillars are not firmly built on this foundation, they will either topple in the direction of indulgence or legalism. You might look at someone else and you might say, I don't do the things that they do. Therefore, I am good and I am right before God. Meanwhile, you are just as sinful and wicked as they are. You just have a different flavor of sin that you enjoy. Jesus says to the people who are listening to him, if you have lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, culturally speaking, in our terms, in terms of the way that it affects us in our life now, there are much more consequences on earth if you actually do those things. But in the long term, the consequences actually are the same. Eternal wrath that is deserved and earned because of our sin. Now, you might look and say, I'm better than that person, but God says, you don't meet my standards. But if we look at these pillars and we begin to rely on our trust in them alone, we are going to fall into the side of legalism. But on the other side, there's indulgence. And if you look at it, most people are guilty of both that are not standing on the gospel. Even believers, genuinely saved people, can fall into these problems. Let me give you an example. There was recently, not too long ago, a shooting at a a gay bar in Orlando, Florida. Many of you will remember this. It happened early on a uh, Sunday morning, late Saturday night. Later that day in California, there was a church that met, and the pastor began proclaiming how good this was, that somebody would take up the cause to eliminate the lives of these people who have sinned against God. He was celebrating the fact that somebody would carry a gun into this bar and begin shooting and ending the lives of these people who are made in God's image. That church celebrated that sermon, and they quickly made news all across the United States, and they never backed down. In fact, they doubled down on their position. What in the world is going on there? They are so filled with hatred and violence towards these people, and they are so filled with self-righteousness. They don't even see their own sin. But beyond that, we could talk about that form of sin, just the sin of hatred. But I can tell you from my knowledge of the church in our culture and society today that the church is desperately struggling and suffering from the pandemic that exists of of, uh, pornography. It is just everywhere. And it is killing our churches. And it is killing Christians' walk with Christ. And we can point fingers all we want and say people have their understanding of sexuality all messed up. But as long as the church continues to indulge in pornography and supporting this industry of sin, we are actually being hypocrites and not serving the purpose of God. We need to recognize that we are just as desperately in need of the grace of God as anyone who performs any form of sin that we don't ourselves indulge in. So we fall in one direction or the other, either indulgence, doing the sin exactly as God has commanded us not to, even though we know it's wrong, or we fall into another form of sin, which is legalism, But either way, what we must understand is that we must build our understanding of the right form of sexuality and gender on the gospel itself. And if we have that firm foundation, and these four pillars, this is by no means exhaustive, but it's a good start for upholding a biblical sexual ethic, then we will have what God intended for us to have. Now, I have a a few other things I would like to mention, but I'm going to simply close with two. First of all, I want you to notice that what we read earlier in Ephesians Ephesians 5 is very significant. Because remember when we talked about what was lost in the curse? When we talked about what was said to Eve? 
Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what Paul says. He says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Do you recognize that this seems to be a, a full restoration of what was lost in the curse in the garden? And by God's grace, we can have that as believers if we trust in Christ. Finally, I just want to say one word to those to correct the thinking that is being promulgated by so many in our society and from churches and pulpits right now. There are many who will tell you that those who practice homosexuality cannot be saved, that those who have had a transgender operation cannot come into the kingdom of God. They have now eliminated themselves from contention. But I want you to understand very simply that no sin... No sin can eliminate you from the grace of God. These people are still people that need to hear the gospel. And we as Christians have often removed ourselves from the realms of evangelism for them. This belief is a radical underestimation of the grace of Jesus Christ, and it is a denial of the power of his cross. I simply want to close with these words found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which reads this way. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop there. He continues and said, and such were some of you. God's grace is amazing. And God's love is far greater than our sin. He says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you know Jesus, you have no right to point fingers, but you have every reason to share this good news with the world, especially those who disagree with us in terms of sexual ethics. I would just say that in our evangelism to them, don't try to correct all the contingencies of their perspectives. Give them the gospel. We don't go to an alcoholic and say, I'll tell you about Jesus when you get sober. Tell them the gospel because that is the foundation of genuine and lasting change. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we desperately need you. Lord, our world will teach us all forms of false things. But Lord, we need you for wisdom and direction and guidance to know how to live. God, please allow us to be people. Let us be a church and those who are visiting from other churches. Let our congregations be marked by people who build our lives on the foundation of the gospel, living in light of what we know to be true about Christ and and your love for us. God, we pray that our relationships with those who are so opposed to this perspective that I have presented today, Lord, I pray that that we would be able to lovingly and, and persuasively communicate the gospel to them. Lord, I pray that our society would not continue to fall deeper and deeper into the forms of depravity that we have been sinking deeply into. God, I pray that you would draw us out, restore us, Lord. This is by no means a perfect nation, and we never have been. But God, we pray that you would restore marriage to a prominent place in the eyes of the people of this nation, and even around the world. God, we pray also, and most significantly, if there is anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ today, Lord, I ask that you would cause them to see you as you are. Let them see that they are responsible before you. And God, I pray that you would save them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.